welcome to Talk is Jericho, and it's time for the Duff McKagan Joke of the Week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan here. Guy walks into the hardware store, grabs a can of fly spray, asks the guy behind the counter, is this good for wasps? And the guy behind the counter says, no, it kills them. Thank you very much. Goodbye. That was st- so stupid. It should be a can of wasp spray and ask the guy if this is good for wasp. I guess he's trying to trying to switch it up a bit. But anyways, we love Duff. Keep the jokes coming. Keep the good times coming. And in order to do that, we have decided to move Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at sea from 2022 to February 2nd to the 6th, 2023, leaving from Miami to Great Stirrup K, a brand new port, private island for us. Uh, it's going to be pretty much the same lineup, but it's going to be even more fun than ever. We felt the quick turnaround along with uh, all of the circumstances going on in the world that have happened since October of 2021 when we had the triple whammy. Uh, we felt it was better just to take some time and make sure that the Four Leaf Clover can be the best cruise we've ever done. And the best way for us to do that was to push it back a bit. So it's still going to be amazing. If you have your cabins, you can switch them over. You've gotten the emails. You know the information. If you're looking to get a cabin, because now you can, please go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com and sign up for the uh, list, the mailing list, and we'll send you all that information. All right, but one thing that's happening for sure at the end of March is the next leg of the Save the World Tour starting March 31st in Detroit, Rock City. Of course, Fozzie crisscrossing the country, headed to the East Coast, West Coast, everywhere in between. We'll be at the Whiskey in May. Uh, get your tickets at FozzieRock.com. And don't, of course, don't forget, of course, about our amazing VIP program where we play a five-song mini set just for you. Don't forget to come see Fozzie, FozzieRock.com for all tickets and, of course, one of the greatest bands that we opened up for on the last tour was Iron Maiden. And Bruce Dickinson returns today for his third appearance on Talk is Jericho. And this time he's talking all about his brand new one-man show called An Evening with Bruce Dickinson. And it kicks off this Monday, January 17th at the Parker Playhouse in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He's doing 34 cities across the states, including Tampa Theater on January 20th. I will be there. Uh, come see Bruce. IronMaiden.com has all the ticket information. And as you're about to hear, it's going to be a wild show filled with tons of stories spanning Bruce's incredible life and career. He is a polymath. As Bruce explains, that means he knows everything about a lot of different subjects. He's going to be sharing some of the details about what you can expect when you go see him live. We're going to talk about all sorts of stuff as well, from the recording of Iron Maiden's new albums and Jutsu to Bruce's recent Achilles injury to fencing. We're talking about fencing for the first time in Talk is Jericho history. Bruce still competes, and you will hear why he won't stop at 63 years old. We're going to talk about the upcoming Iron Maiden tour and the plans that they have this year. We're also going to touch on Bruce's podcast called Psycho Schizo Expresso. Uh, He does it with Oxford University psychologist Dr. Kevin Dutton. They talk about some really interesting subjects, explore all sorts of uh, people and topics. We'll get into the whole meaning of the number 666, something they did a whole episode on. But you can listen to Psycho Schizo Expresso for free wherever you get your podcasts. You can check out the video version on YouTube and you can check out Bruce Dickinson here an hour with Bruce Dickinson right now on Talk is Jericho. All right, here we go. Uh, This is the the third time Bruce Dickinson joins us here on Talk is Jericho. 
I need to get you like a green jacket or something now. Yeah, yeah, was it? Yeah, so like, uh, but I don't think we did it. Did we do it on Zoom before or did we just do it? We have never done it in Zoom. We did no. one in person, one in a studio, and now the yeah. new way of connecting via Zoom yeah. over the last few years. It's it's crazy. Without this technology, this last year would have been a lot, uh, lot worse, I have to say. Yeah, we wouldn't have made a video for starters. We, Absolutely. We made, yeah, yeah, and we, we all the all the meetings for the video, everything was all was all done over Zoom with like sixteen little tiles of people, like you know, all you know, all chatting away. Don't all talk at once, you know. Well, let's talk about that briefly. You're talking about the video for writing on the wall, which is uh, animated, but there's it's there, there's so many Easter eggs and so much detail, yeah, uh, and so much in there for everybody. I'm, I'm assuming that you were kind of the uh, the captain. Uh, behind this quarterbacking the whole thing yeah uh although i mean i came up with the the idea that we should do something big as a video and then rod said well yeah i kind of agree with that um so uh, go away and think of something i went oh thanks you know <laughs> so uh so i wrote i wrote the story and then with the story we got um andrew and and mark on board who are the two producers from pixar or ex-Pixar, and then uh, they found Blink, who were the animation company in the UK that actually did it. So, so far, so good. And then we were into six or seven months of making a video or an animated video. And of course, funnily enough, when we do this this one-man show thing that I'm doing right. around, around the country, so one of my like dreams would have been to have a premiere for the video in a th in a, an actual cinema with that big Dolby sound and the whole thing. And of course we couldn't because of the pandemic and all the rest of it. But I can have a little mini premiere every night. <laughs> so I'm carrying this like big HD copy, whatever it is of the of the vid with me. And uh, I have a, we specify a really high quality HD projector and screen, back projector and screen. And obviously most of these places have got pretty good sound systems. Mm -hmm. So we've got a sound effects version of riding on the wall with a full Dolby, you know. So basically, I just, in the interval, there's about a 25-minute interval. So as I go off, I go, by the way, you might just want to sit around and, and, and look at this because you'll see things I guarantee that you haven't seen on the small screen, you know. It's so cinematic. It's amazing. Yeah, so uh, we have a bit of fun with that. Well, it's great because you're talking about an evening with Bruce Dickinson, which is, is your, and this is an extensive tour as well of the United States. Uh, looks like you're doing 30 or 40 cities. Uh, yeah. I was just in the UK uh, last month when you were doing some shows there as well. And uh, it's funny too, looking at the at the uh, press release. Did you know you're a polymath? Uh, yeah, I know. I thought that was something you got on a coral reef or something, you know, or something you stepped on and it hurt your foot, you know. But... I thought it was a mathematician. I didn't have yeah. any idea what yeah, it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a person who does a lot of things, but none of them well. <laughs> but in this day and age, that's good enough. And it's, it's exciting to see because I've done these type of shows before, the one-man shows, and they're a, a lot of fun, but they're very hard. You, it's... You have to really be locked in and concentrated to do these. Obviously, you enjoy them because you've had so many shows. What kind of spurred your idea to do this? And were you just kind of throwing darts at first? What the hell do I do? And figure it out as you go? Uh, yeah, basically. I mean, when I did the, the the autobiography, you know, what does this button do? Well, in the spirit of what does this button do, what happens if I tried that? You know, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that was... 
when I was doing promotion for the book, the publishing company said, why don't you go around and just do some readings from the book? I went, ah, yeah. oh, yeah, that's okay. But that's not a bit boring. People can read it for themselves. And, you know, if I was like, you know, Sir Ian McKellen or like you know, <laughs> the late Sir Richard Burton, you know, just sort of broadsword calling Danny boy, you know, but it's not me, you know. Right. And I said, it'd be more fun if I actually told the stories in the book, like as a storyteller, standing around, acting around, using a bit of physical, you know, presence and maybe tell a few stories that are not in the book and maybe get some questions from the audience. And they went, oh, yeah, we like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's more interesting, isn't it? I mean, people just sit there like, you know, like mannequins for, for how many, two hours, or you have them laughing and moving around and, and doing something. I said, why don't they write the questions out on cue cards? I said, and then I'll take them out the back and I'll, I'll do something with them. And they, they said, well, what are you going to do? I said, mm, I'm not exactly sure, but I'll tell you in about 45 <laughs> minutes. So what it was I, I did was I have a once or twice in my life, I, I, I did a bit of um, improv street theater when I was 15, mm. 16. And that switched on a bit of my brain. It's the same same bit of my brain that I use when I write songs. It's, you know, it's what you, you kind of you create something out of seemingly thin air but it's not really thin air. It's two or three different aspects of something and you join them all together and create, bing, you know, it's a sketch, it's a, something funny, it's whatever. Anyway, next part of it was, and I, I did that for just in the summer for a kind of like a, a summer vacation. We went on an old coal barge on canals and slept <laughs> on the coal barge and then did street theatre in pubs and like youth centres and stuff like that when I was about 16. Anyway, so... There was that aspect of it, and I was intrigued as to whether or not I could still do it. And there was something I saw, uh, a guy who was a very early LGBTQ, whatever. he was a gay man in the early, uh, mid to late 70s, right? Called, a guy called Quentin Crisp. Mm, sure. And he wrote, yeah, The Naked Civil Servant, John Hurt, right? There's mm -hmm. a movie about him. So he was an early sort of like gay pioneer, and he was quite outrageous for the day now he's been very tame but but back then you know wearing makeup and going to work with a big flouncy hat was seen as being quite risque and outrageous right. but he was very funny and he did a one-man show and my girlfriend said you got to go and see this somebody says it's really funny and i was like never heard of the guy who is he it was brilliant i was so entertained it was witty i never expected to be that entertained and at the end he did this thing with the cue cards Hmm. where we all got to write things on the thing on the on the cue cards and then he arranged them in such a way that it basically was like a script hmm. and i went that's really clever I, and, and i remembered it for 30 years ago and i went maybe i could have a go at that i mean it really was a what does this button do moment it's like let's see if i could do this without falling flat on my face <laughs> and it kind of worked and then from that kind of anarchic chaos my speaking agent came up to me and he went mate he said you've got a one-man show here i went nah really he said no you have he said you've got a one-man show he said you need to organize it a bit and compress it a bit and try a few things out and yeah so that's what i, I did i went out and um and did shows in dribs and drabs and uh and kind of honed it down i suppose it's what stand-up comics do when they go and turn mm -hmm. up in the middle of some bar in the middle of nowhere 
and hope nobody's t taping it and tr <laughs> and try all their you know failed or best or worst material you know and see if it works so um i did this and we we ended up at the format of about an hour and a half the first bit which t starts at birth and is the story of how a fat spotty short kid from an island floating around in the middle of the Atlantic where it rains a lot in a town you've never heard of becomes the wearer of the world's most ridiculous trousers and singer of the biggest heavy metal band in the world so how does that happen you know well here's how it happens you know so it's it's a sideways look at it all yes some of it's serious but most of it's humorous and I also cover some of the other stuff. You know, let's go barracuda fishing with a <laughs> mercenary in Sierra Leone. Hey, how'd you do that? You know, how did you end up there? You know, there's stuff about family. And I talk a lot about childhood and about how the things you do when you're a kid keep coming back throughout your whole life. You recycle everything you do in your, it's never wasted. It always comes back. I mean, the John Hurt, you know, um, the Quentin Crisp thing Queen being Chris, a case yeah. in point. You know, I didn't know I was going to use that 40 years later, 30, 40, however long ago it was, you know. So those are the stories. I, obviously, I deal with, I can't deal with every single thing because that's like insanity. Um, and you need to keep it tight because you, you can't lose the audience. They need to know what mm -hmm. you're talking about. But cancer is obviously a, bit, a, a part of it. Sure. And... It goes to the heart of what the show's about, what I want to leave people leaving the theatre with. I obviously, I, I want them to laugh a lot. I want them to be entertained. And I, above all, I'd like them to leave feeling better than when they went in. You know, uplifted a little bit, you know. I've got some merch, uh, some shirts and things that we've, we've made up. And, and the, on the back, we've often put the little quotes that I say sometimes during the show. And my favourite quote which is kind of how I would like them to leave the theatre, is life is better than all the other options. <laughs> and that's it. I mean, that, that, that's, that, that's it straightforward. So between what does this button do and life is better than all the other options, you've got me. Actually, you don't need to come see the show now. You know? Yeah, we're done. <laughs> Plus, you've got, you've got the title for your next book as well. That's perfect. Life yeah. is better than all the other options. Bruce, when you're putting together the stories that you tell, I know, like like I said, for, for the sh when I was doing the shows, I would it was almost like a set list. I would try some different stories, the ones that got the best reactions. I would make a note and write them down, and kind of say an anchor of these four or five stories always work. And then I'll add some other ones depending on what the crowd yeah, is doing. Yeah, you have yeah. the same idea. Yeah, exactly the same. In actual fact, I I did actually r r spend a couple of days writing down just little notes of like story one, two, three, four, bum, 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 just so I've, I've got them. I know most of them, but sometimes I go off at a tangent and tell a story on stage that I hadn't told before. And, and the, the, my tour manager's going, you haven't told that one before. I said, have I not? Really? Wow. He goes, oh, great. He said, you've got to put that one in. I said, well, there's no time to, I've, I've got to, if I put that one in, something else has got to come out. Right. But you get a feel for the audience and you know, for it, you get this feeling that now is the time to introduce Nico to the audience, you know? Ah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, and, and depending on, you know, who the audience is and everything else, then, uh, yeah, you can do more or less of certain things, you know? So it's, it's, it is fluid. I, I really sincerely hope that nobody who comes to see the show twice goes away going, ah, it was just the same as last night. Never <laughs> is. It never is, you know? 
uh, and uh, yeah, I just did nine shows in the in the UK, uh, which is the first shows I'd done for a while. So I was a bit nervous the first one. I was like, oh my god! And believe it or not, my mm -hmm. the, the management, like you know, my maiden manager Rod Smallwood and all the people, none of them had ever seen one of these shows. So they all turned up to this old theatre in Brighton on the south coast. Lovely, lovely old theatre, Victorian theatre. About a thousand seats in it, right? So it was all sold out. And um, I walked on and they all came out and they go, that was amazing. That was great. I said, so uh, we got the green light now. Can I take this to America and Canada? You know, uh, you know, uh, so, uh, it is quite rude in places. It's, I mean, I, I, I'll be I'll be perfectly honest. You know, there's uh, there's lots of uh, it's, it's peppered with swear words and some very unsavory uh, situations, which most of which are very funny as well. So it's a uh, kind of r-rated or maybe maybe sort of like mm -hmm. you know pg-16 if such a thing exists you know wild card weekend just got wilder fan duel sportsbook is hooking up new customers with 30 to 1 enhanced odds when they make a deposit that means you can bet five bucks to win 150 dollars on any team to win any wild card game fan duel is america's number one sportsbook it's an easy-to-use app, and when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as two hours. If you already have FanDuel Sportsbook, you can get 50 bucks when you refer a friend. Plus, FanDuel will give your friend 50 bucks as well. Don't miss your chance to win $150 off a $5 bet when you use the promo code Jericho at sign up. Download the FanDuel Sportsbook app, use the promo code Jericho, and pick your wildcard team before kickoff. Must be 21 and over and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. New users only. $10 first deposit required. Must wager and designator offer market. Max bonus $150. Bonus for Tennessee users is fulfilled in site credit within 72 hours and expires 14 days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? In Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Virginia, call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG. In Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Connecticut call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org/chat in Indiana call 1-800-9 with it in Tennessee call redline 1-800-889-9789 or in West Virginia visit 1-800 or in West Virginia visit 1-800gambler.net it's interesting to me that you said you did some some street improv. I've done improv as well. You know, being a frontman of a band, being a wrestler, improv is a big part of it. Do you find that's helped you as a frontman? Because you're great, obviously, on stage and talking to people and commanding giant crowds, smaller ones on on your evening shows. Did the improv skills do they come in handy throughout your oh, career? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, just just what I'd call general stagecraft. As in, as soon as you walk onto a stage. Uh, the rules change. You know, you're not in the outside world anymore. You're on stage. And the rules change and you've got a relationship with an audience and they have expectations of you because you're on the stage because they paid money to see mm. you. And um, 
They expect you to do something or deliver something or say something or teach something or entertain them or juggle or whatever the hell it is. But don't stand there and stare at your shoes and feel sorry for yourself because they will crucify you. Mm. And and audiences are um, are wonderful, but they can also be incredibly brutal. Mm. You know, I, I learned a bit of that, you know, when I was at school. I was in every school play that was going, you know. Um, and and mm-hmm. but and I would have been I I now know I would have been a shocking actor, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, because I people who are really good at acting are just really good at being somebody else, um, and I'm only really good at being me. <laughs> <laughs> How did you deal with that when early on, like you said, especially before Maiden became Iron Maiden? If you had a crowd that was a little bit difficult. How did you, what tricks did you use to make them like you more? I would insult them. Ah, reverse psychology. I would insult them, either that or, or, try, and, or try and make friends with them, but in a very odd way. Um, so, I mean, I had one, one show um, I was in, I was in a unit band at university and we turned up and there was one, in the old days would have been called a disco, right? And uh, except there was nobody there. It's like the phantom disco and there was like mirror balls and lights and there was us on stage and there was nobody, nobody there. But we were getting paid like 50 bucks to go and play. So then the door opened and one person walked in, looked a bit shocked that there was somebody (laughs) actually on stage. And so he got a chair and he put it and right in the middle of the dance floor sat down on this chair. And I thought, this is great. And so I got off the stage and I went up to him and with the microphone, I said, excuse me, sir. I said, I got to know. I said, um, what's your name? And he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, can I buy you a beer? You know, I said, because we're about to do this performance just for you. I've, the least I can do is buy you a beer. You, you, never, you may hate it. You know what I mean? And, 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 and then we kind of relaxed and we had this, we actually had a relationship. We had an audience of one who didn't know who we were from Adam <laughs> But actually, we had a great time. You know, <laughs> nobody cared, nobody knew, but we had a great time. And and you, I think you have to take that that there's always a way in to a bad situation. Always a way into a bad situation. You just have to think laterally outside the box. A, a pet peeve of mine is when a band goes on in what is obviously a toilet with two beer crates at one end of the stage. And they go on there and they pretend that they're in Madison Square Gardens. And it's like, hello, Cleveland, you know. And I'm just like, no, it's not Cleveland. You're in a toilet with two beer crates. If you just said to people, hey, we're all in a toilet with two beer crates, everybody would go, these guys are great. I love these guys. But instead they go, ah, yeah, just a bunch of posers, you know. Mm. So so you, you've got to be real with it. Now, obviously, when you're on stage and I'm Maiden, uh, you've got the lights, you've got everything, you've got the bigs like... At the beginning and you know intro tapes and stuff but that makes it even worse if you go out and goof up hmm. and what i've discovered well my pet theory of clubs versus theaters versus arenas versus stadiums right is that the one where you have to be almost note perfect is not in a club where people are right in front of your face where you, because then there's all these other uh, triggers and stimuli going on to distract their attention away from the fact that you're out of tune and they don't care you're out of tune because you're sweating and they're right next door to you and yeah that's it but in the stadium you know they, they paid a hundred bucks to come and see you 
and there's a big build-up and you walk out and you do exactly the same performance they go wow they suck wow they sound like a terrible bar mm. band but if you did that same thing as the same band in a bar they go wow that was great that was legendary mm -hmm. so it's audiences change their they change their perspective according to where you are and what their expectation is you know so how do you do that, Bruce? I mean, obviously being a stadium band in a lot of ways with a giant crowd, but you move a lot. You're always moving and jumping. You still do the big Bruce, Bruce jump in the air. As a singer and as a front man, what people don't understand is it is hard. It's one or the other. You can stand still and really get yeah. your, your gig yeah. right, or you got to entertain 60,000 yeah. people. How do you combine the two? It's always a compromise. Because as you say, I mean, if I was... Um going to do everything uh then i would just have a little plexiglass box and i'd be wearing cans and uh, uh and everything would be perfect and in actual fact you know you could have like a bird in a cage and just put a, a black drape over the top of me why even bother to see me just have cardboard cutouts down there you know so it's the difference between being in a, being trying to do things perfectly right and trying to animate the song and tell the story of the song not just through your voice, but through your body, you know, and um, and and great singers do tell the story through with their body language. I mean, even you know people you don't associate with with it, but look at the look at all those you know those great singers in in in, in Vegas and the crew, you know, the, the Sinatra and all those people. Okay. They're not leaping around on the stage, but their bodies their bodies telling the story as they're doing it, you know. So it's 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 an, it's important. It's a part of it. Body language is so important. Now we have a really theatrical show between the props and 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 all the rest of it. Uh, sure. Then it is quite a workout for me. And so uh, and I'm not getting any younger. I discovered this the other week. That's part of my polymath outlook. You see, I I figured out that I am not getting any younger. You know, and uh, <laughs> you know, I had a medical and they told me. I went, shit, is that what it is? You know. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so because on the last tour, um, I bust my Achilles tendon uh, three months before the yeah three months before the tour. Total rupture, had it stitched back together. Thirty six hours oh, after wow. the break, uh, stitched back together, and I was hobbling around in a boot. I finished Yeesh. the album. Uh, it was the it was the um, uh, the Book of Souls album. It was it Senjutsu, wasn't it? Oh no, shit! It was Senjutsu. Yeah. That's how long ago it right. was. Yeah, so it was Senjutsu. So I was in a boot for the last couple of. Uh, uh, oh yeah, sorry, Booker Souls. Yeah, that was cancer. <laughs> that one, yeah. so this, get your get your ailments right, Bruce. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So so I so I so I'm, I'm hobbling around in the in in this in this sort of like boot, you know, with my foot on my my ankle and you know calf swollen up because it was only like three days after the operation. So I'm like, uh, okay, I'm just gonna have a lie down with my foot in the air, just like let the fluid drain, and uh, yeah, then I'll just be back to the third verse. <laughs> And then I thought, how the hell am I going to rehab this Achilles before um, the tour starts at the end of August? Because I bust it at the end of April, Jeez. May, June, July, four months, yeah. four months for a total ruptured Achilles. And I thought, I can't even walk, let alone run, let alone jump. Yeesh. So, um, yeah, I just, uh, I, I, I faked it, you know? How do you fake it? Well, basically, I, I figured out that... There were some things I just couldn't do, like running was one of them, because uh, there was no strength in the calf at all. I mean, it was going to break or anything else like that, but there was not there. So I thought, if I want to move around kind of dramatically from one side of the stage to the other, I'm basically going to turn myself into a crab and just use hips and thighs. 
Mm. So by not involving your calves hardly at all, or maybe only the right one, so you go upstairs one, one foot at a time, so they couldn't see that. The audience couldn't see that, that I had a 30-pound uh, flamethrower on my back and a cape carrying a cross. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm walking upstairs basically on one leg with no safety barrier. You know, I'm thinking this is kind of cool. You know, I do like a risk every now and again. Um, and I, I couldn't jump off the monitors. I mean, literally, I, I could not run. Mm. And so... Um, uh yeah i got through the tour and nobody figured no. it out everybody went oh he's running around like crazy he's doing this i was just like actually if only you knew <laughs> so i got to the end of the tour then went back training and and it's been two and a half years now and i mean i'm still rehabbing it it takes for it just is a it's a horrible injury it's a terrible one yeah yeah and then uh i had a uh i had a new hip last october yay <laughs> <laughs> now year last october so um i'm actually tomorrow i'm actually in a fencing competition for two days so um you know i've been training four or five days a week uh fencing um and putting it all back together we were doing um uh the rehab for the hip uh, my physio i was working for three days a week during the lockdown with him because mm. it was allowed because it was medical and it was in the hospital right. the gym and so um he said uh look you know we got we, you know we could do this for you know, we've got a good six months here that we can do this. He said, yeah, how far do you want to take it? Because we could do upper body as well. We could really do some cool stuff. And uh, yeah, I said, well, let's see what we can squat, you know. So we were doing 40 reps of, you know, 100 kilos, mm -hmm. which my body weight's 70. Yeah. So uh, that's not bad, you know, um, for a 63-year-old guy. So we were, we were really going for it and... Uh, doing lots of explosive stuff. Uh, um, we got a strength and conditioning guy in who was uh, into, like, uh, actually he was uh, the British Sabre team strength, strength and conditioning mm -hmm. coach. And he was getting his full physio, you know, Bachelor of Science degree. So he had to do a year's intern at the hospital. So my physio, who was the main teacher, said, I got this guy and we're going to do all the plyometric stuff, the jumping on and off boxes, the boom, boom, explosive stuff. Um, and we actually set up a fake wedge monitor. Ah. And the guy said, he goes, he goes, I've seen what you do. <laughs> he said, let's see if we can work up to that. Um, so, yeah, so I haven't tried it uh, yet in, in anger, but uh, I'm sure it's going to work. I mean, I am actually. I mean, I did a, a 3K, a 4K, and a 5K run on successive days last week. I'm thinking, this is all working okay, you know? Thanks to Nugenics for supporting Talk is Jericho. These products and statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or illness. Texting enrolls you into a recurring automatic text messages. Message and data rates may apply. Listen, if you're a man over 40, listen up because this could impact how much you're getting done during the day and at night. The harsh reality is once you hit 40, your body may have less free testosterone and that can mean it's harder to stay in shape and you have less energy and drive. Here's the good news, Nugenics, the number one selling testosterone booster at GNC has changed the game again for men over 40 with Nugenics Total T, their most powerful man-boosting formula ever, and guys all over America are raving about it. Jeremy P. says, this is the best product I've found to raise T levels. I plan on using the product for the rest of my life. Shane D. says, I had no drive, was tanked out at the end of the day. After three months, my energy level is through the roof. 
I work out like most 19-year-olds, and I'm only 47. Guys over 40, you need Nugenics Total Tea. And right now, you can get a complimentary bottle. Just text Jericho to 231-231. It's the number one selling free testosterone booster at GNC. But you can only get your complimentary bottle by texting Jericho to 231-231. That's J-E-R-I-C-H-O to 231-231. Text Jericho to 231-231. It's interesting you mentioned fencing. So I was going to ask you about that. When when you, because you've been doing this, I don't know, probably your whole life, at least from the 80s for sure. Since I was, since I was 14. Since you were 14. So do you, when you have competitions are is it based on age is it based on skill level how does it work for you now at 63 first of all there are open competitions mm. in which you know basically you turn up and you might end up with like fencing the national champion who's you know a 25 year old you know won, won the pants and uh you know is going to kick your ass he thinks um you will probably go down but at least go down fighting mm. you know so you know so the score is respectable you know but obviously there are other competitions that are you know depending on your level where you go in at but there are also age group competitions now for old age pensioners like me so basically once you get to 40 you're then classified as being a, a vet mm. right you know so the, the age groups are 40 to 50 50 to 60 uh, 60 to 70 and 70 and above wow okay so um we have veterans competitions where it's just all in so there's the age groups are all just mixed together um so you could be i'm 63 i'll be fencing a 40 year old Mm -hmm. in which case i just don't care because i'm just going to beat his ass you know because i you know that's you know um you have ones like tomorrow where actually there's a separate category for each age group um, because when the because as far as world championships and European championships are concerned, tomorrow's a selection event. So the top of each age group, uh, the guy who wins it basically, best two out of three results of the three qualifi- qualifiers, is going to qualify automatically. But because of COVID, they they reserve the right who else they're going to take because it's just such a weird season with with everything mm. and there's a team event as well so team is uh, three plus a reserve so uh, yeah, basically i'm um i'm fencing uh yeah i'm fencing to saturday and sunday tomorrow in the uh in the uh, uh 60 to 70 crumbly division <laughs> and, and the idea is you want to stab the guy in in the heart right with with your fence with your sword? i'll just take I'll, I'll stab him anywhere i don't care you know i'm not picky <laughs> But you get a point. Yeah, epe, uh, the, the epee, which is, uh, uh, there, are three, there are three types of weapon in fencing, uh, sport fencing. One is the, the epee, the other one is the foil, and the other one is the saber. The saber is self-explanatory. Everything, other, everything above the waist counts with the edge. The foil, it's uh, only the point and basically the torso. So no arms, no legs, just the torso. The idea is you only score a point if you hit the torso. If you hit anything else, it stops the fight for about 10 seconds and then you you resume so the epee is the easiest one to understand of all because you hit anything anywhere anytime it scores you count as points and uh, if you both hit each other at the same time you both score and then is there do you have to get to a certain uh, number for the points or is it a time limit uh both so um you have because uh, we're old and crumbly 
Um, we uh, <laughs> we only fence for two three minute rounds. Gotcha. So for in what we call the direct elimination phase, but typically a competition will be one or two rounds of pools. So you'll have five or six people to fence for five points, first to five points, with a three minute time limit, and then you'll do another round of that same thing, and then they'll seed it, and then you'll go into a direct elimination, and that's to ten points. And you get two three-minute rounds to do that with a minute break. And then if you get through, you know, 64, 32, 16, 8, 4, 2, 1, if you get all the way through, you'll figure it out that you've actually done an awful lot of fighting. You've done, you know, you know how many three-minute rounds have you done during that day? Quite a lot. So you start at typically 8 in the morning and you'd be done if you win it by 6 or 7 in the evening. Well, there you go. Some, some fencing information, fencing lessons yeah. from Bruce Dickinson here. Um, and, and you mentioned earlier, Bruce, that going back to the evening with Bruce Dickinson, your show, the, the one man show, um, that you were nervous when you first were going back on stage. Because this is the first time you've been back on stage since the lockdown uh, pre, pre with Iron Maiden. And now you're on your own. How was it for you being nervous again? Do you get nervous before you go on stage or was this just it's been such a long time? Well, I, I get nervous. I get nervous when, before I go on stage with Iron Maiden as well, especially at the beginning mm. of a tour. You know, once you once you're sort of like five or six seven shows uh into the tour you're kind of back into the routine right so you you kind of know what's going to happen but the big fear especially for a singer is that you walk on stage and open your mouth and garbage comes out you know um <laughs> or nothing at all or like ah words <laughs> you know so and that's irrational but it's valid so just uh, own up to it. So, I mean, I keep a copy of the lyric sheet backstage. I never look at it, mm. but if I knew it wasn't there, I'd freak out. <laughs> and then after, then once, then, then, then every tour, then once, once I get to, you know, like uh, six or seven shows in, the training wheels come off and I, uh, you know, just go, I go, I go leave it in the wardrobe case. But the one man show's a bit different because it's just you, mm. you know, uh, and if you stop, it all stops. You know, as if I forget the words, uh, the band carries on. You know, yeah, that's right. If I if I if I go <laughs> like that, it, it, you know, um, oh, where was I? I, I <laughs> that's right. I, 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 I help. You know, and there's no um, there's no kind of like auto cue or teleprompter, or whatever you want to call it, because of course none of the stories are actually you know written down. It's not a script. You know, it's. Uh, it's it's stories. So when you mention that you get questions from the audience and, and you assemble them like like Sir Quentin Crisp did, how do you mean you're assembling them? Are you just putting them together in a, in a way that's going to uh, flow properly? Are you just kind of guessing which ones will work? Well, a bit of bit of bit of everything really. So I, I look for you know really interesting interesting questions. Somebody's got a really good question. Then I start to look for different areas of questioning. So there might be six or seven questions all about the same topic that in itself is quite funny because they all write it in the same way so some people might have a you know i mean there, there might be a particular iron maiden song that people are really incensed that we've never played you know and so there's like about 10 questions that like you know you know why is it you have never played alexander the great is it because you do not like greek people why <laughs> when will you play alexander the great i will send you a month's supply of feta cheese you know what is, you know i mean so i mean it, it, it's those kind of questions you put those back to back and all of a sudden everybody's cracking up going you know this is right. funny and then you get just mad crazy ones and 
Then you get ones that people are concerned for your health and well-being, you know. And all you have to do is juxtapose that with the guy that goes, are you afraid of death? You know, mm. so, you know, how, mm, nice. are, how are you at the moment? Um, what's your favorite thing? What did you have for breakfast? Are you afraid of death? Um, and, you, you know, you can see how people don't know what the next question is going to be when they write their question. So mm. you, you can look at it all and go, I think that and that and that back to back with a bit of comic timing could be funny. And I try to put those bits in. And then you have some serious questions. So you go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go big on this one. And I'm going to go big on this one and this one. So you can go into kind of unexpected depth. So people go, ooh, ooh, this is interesting. Mm. Ooh, yeah, you know. And I never know exactly, you know, it depends what mood I'm in as well. And, you know, like, so for example, talking about singing, singing techniques, singing, different singing voices, different influences, things like that. You know, I have been known to burst into song, mm-hmm. you know. I've seen, yeah. So, we go, yeah, so you go, you know, but it's it's never guaranteed and it's hopefully never the same. Yeah, you sing different bits of songs depending on, on what's coming up. Depending out. on what the question is and what the story is and things like that. And also what the vibe is of the audience, what the feel is of the audience, because it's actually a lovely way to end the show. Is there a question uh, that you've got over the last you know, few months that stood out as the funniest question or the most ridiculous question? Oh, there's quite a few, but the one I the one I always remember to tell is one of the ones from the early days when this kid wrote a cue card. It went, do you remember meeting my mum in a hotel <laughs> in Budapest in 1983? <laughs> By the way, you're not my father. I checked. <laughs> Did you remember his mum? Uh, no, absolutely not. No, I, 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 I thought, I thought, you know, I, 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 1983 in Budapest. Let me just think. Hang on, let me, let me go. Notches on the bedpost. No, not that day. No, no, no. Uh, Bruce, you mentioned a few times about about your cancer, and, and what I wanted to ask you because when you were on last time. Actually, when we talked about Book of Souls when it was coming out, you mentioned how singing live was going to be a bit of a challenge and you had had to keep uh, your voice uh, lubricated because your saliva glands hadn't come back yet. Yeah. How was recording the album Senjutsu? Was there differences? Did you feel back completely where you were? Do you have to adjust certain things? No, it's weird um, in that, you know, I I wouldn't say I was back where I was because some bits of it's better than they, they were, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's changed slightly, but obviously not that much because people go, oh, it's him. He's back. You know, um, <laughs> it's identifiable, you know, guilty as charged. Uh, so the other thing about it is, is that Steve has been using my voice in interesting and innovative ways. So he's, he's, he's really started to to use the different tones that I have in my voice and start Mm. layering things and creating the atmospheres and stuff. So, I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, the opening track is, is, uh, you know, real evidence of that, you know, because we, we start off with this, it's, it's kind of like double tracked and harmonized. The whole Mm -hmm. vocal is a harmony. And then you go to this part, which starts right down in the low register 
Now will we feel that the real things do hold us now? And, and, it, and it builds and builds and builds. And then you get the, you know, notes that only bats can hear bits. You know, hear me calling. Let That's right. Now we wait. You know, and I'm thinking, I mean, I, I, and I, when we did that track, I was just like, you know, this is great. You know, this we, we really have moved on from those early early four classic albums of ours we've really grown into using everything we've got you know mm -hmm. not 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 limiting ourselves to the tram lines as it were you know <laughs> well and such lengthy tunes as well that's one thing I, I loved about the record is you can't just listen to it once or twice it's funny because when when the maiden camp sent me the record as kind of an advanced copy which was great it disappeared after two listens it was like mission impossible like if you choose to accept this mission it, it went away and i actually said to todd can i get it back because you can't listen to this thing two or three times this is a 10 listen album here there's a lot to it i didn't even realize they did that that was uh, it did that's, yeah that's, classic rod smallwood right that's funny okay yeah um <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I, I had to move heaven and earth to listen to it myself because, I mean, <laughs> I wanted to hear writing on the wall because I was obviously writing the story to it. And even though, you know, I, I, I wrote the words and I, you know, wrote the melody and everything, I was just like, um, look, I mean, any chance you could just send me a really shitty copy <laughs> of it? Because much as I think I remember exactly about it, <laughs> there's a guitar solo and everything else and everything else. And... You know, stuff needs to... I need to know how long that is and what it right. feels like because I'm scripting a story to go with it and I need the action to fit the music, you know? Right, And right. Um, they were like, oh, if you must... And they sent it to me as a sound file that sounded like a... that, that had a title that was some, like, fake Beatles song or something, you know? You know um, Secret, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> love, love me, yeah, 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 or something, you know, you know? No, but so, but so when you guys do start playing songs from Senjutsu, yeah. it's almost like starting from scratch because you recorded this record, like you said, two, three years ago. Are you going to have to relearn all these parts? Because these are some long, long uh, pieces here. So so the the plan we've got, I mean, it's it's uh, it's not really a secret. I think everybody else has, has chatted about it. We will, I hope, we've talked about doing the entire album start to finish. I figured, yeah. But not, not this time around. And, and we all appreciate that that is something that, you know, really diehard fans would probably love and other people would go, mm, I'm not going to go see that. So the answer is you play smaller venues so that they sell out with your, just your diehard fans because it's kind of a, it's a musical thing to do. It's a musical thing. It's not, <laughs> you know, you know, but the Legacy of the Beast tour, people have all paid their money to see Legacy of the Beast show with Spitfires and Flamethrowers and Icarus and, you know, everything that goes with. So they're going to get all of that. But the first uh, first three tracks are probably going to be the first three tracks on the album. Writing on the wall, they already know. Yeah. You know, so they sh everybody should know the first three tracks. And I just think Senjutsu is just such a great opening song. It is. So dramatic, you know. And then once you've done that... And we'll have a stage set to go with it. Once you've done that, you can you're back to the kind of legacy world at that point. But I think writing on the wall is going to be great. I mean, that's going to be a great song to. I mean, 
crowd sing-along song. You can imagine that. You know, it'd be fantastic. It's going to be like a fear of the dark where it gets a whole new life as this live chant-along sing-along. Yeah. But I, I have to, to, to digress here, Bruce. I saw you guys do Matter of Life and Death in its entirety back in 2005 or six, whenever it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that Maiden fans, sure, they'll be the, well, we want to hear Number of the Beast, Run to the Hills, you know, running free guys. But I think Maiden, people understand that we want to hear the whole record in its entirety because only Iron Maiden would have the balls and the audacity to do that. And that's kind of what makes Iron Maiden such a great, unique band. But it's such a great record as well. I mean, when you get a record that's good, you know, then, you know, you just got to do it. And you might get a bit of, but nobody has to buy a ticket. You know what I mean? If you don't want to go do it, just you you don't buy a ticket. It's, It's it's going to be plain as the nose on your face, you know. This is going to be what they're going to do. So given that, don't complain that they did what they said they were going to do. You know, but anyway, never mind. You know? I still think that you'll be playing stadiums with that uh, in mind. I don't think you'll be playing smaller venues, in my opinion. Oh, I'm well. making a prediction right now. Right. You're going to think about this a year and a half, two years down the line. But We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, uh, all I'm thinking about is getting out rehearsing in, in, in April, singing these three new songs and getting them all you know all dialed in and then the rest of the set running through getting ourselves all match fit and and off we go march may 22 i think is the first show as we start to wind down here bruce i I was listening to uh your podcast as well because you are a polymath Ah, like we said psycho schizo espresso yeah 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 yeah. which i love the concept of it because it's a very bruce thing to do this is not talking about you know, Iron Maiden stories, it, you touch on it as well, but it's much more uh, ethereal. It's about psychology and human behavior. Exactly. And you had a great first episode where you talked about how heavy metal and the devil's role yeah. in, in this music. And of course, talking in depth about one of your most famous choruses, 666. What an interesting podcast that is. And anybody that's listening to this show should go listen to it. But kind of explain a little bit about that and about how the relationship between the two. Yeah. So um, uh, Dr. Kevin Dutton is a uh, psychologist at Oxford University. And he's has a few interesting specialties. So he is uh, one of the few people who is allowed by the FBI to turn up to any federal prison and take out the craziest people in there and sit down in a room and interview them. Really? Yeah, because he's the forensic psychologist for our lockup crazy people jail called Broadmoor, where the, only the craziest people are sent. And he's he's the dude. He, he works there sometimes. He's also the selection psychologist for the special forces. And he's also a sports psychologist who does the Olympic rowing team amongst uh, some Olympic rowers and people like that. He's a world expert on psychopaths and uh, has written several books and a few articles in Scientific American on how psychopaths have got a bit of a bad name and not everything about being a psychopath is necessarily bad, you know. <laughs> anyway, we ended up having a chat once over over lunch somewhere. We, we ended up meeting through a mutual friend and him and his wife were there. She's also a psycho- psychologist at Oxford University. And we were chatting away, going, blah, 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 blah. And she goes, you know, I should have just recorded that. You two should do a podcast. Hmm. So we sat down and went, maybe we should. You know, we'll just do it for free and we'll make it free. What could we talk about? And boom. So last week we had a guy who's uh, an expert on, on groups, 
and group think and the thing was like is the mafia really a bad thing so it was one of the thing next week we've got a guy called andy mcnab uh, which is not his real name but he's a worldwide best-selling author of um, books about the special forces and mm -hmm. novels because he was in the special forces he was in the sas and did do the real things that the sas actually do and got up to so um uh we're talking to him we've after that we've got a uh, a leading uh, now just retired but a leading heart surgeon who is one of the world's top heart surgeons and is a diagnosed psychopath <laughs> so you know these people we've got the guy who's a world expert on pain talking about pain how useful is it how is manufactured in the brain what things we can use it for uh how we enjoy it in some cases how it makes us perform better in some cases and how our attitude to it is kind of ambivalent you know because we're afraid of pain but at the same time it spurs us on uh in some respects uh, as well uh, and we also feel guilty about treating pain, given that most of us, as he put it, this guy said, uh, given that most of us will die in pain. Most of us will die in pain. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? Jeez, and he's, thanks. And, and he's like, yeah, and said, but we have the attitude that somehow it's wrong to remove pain. We feel guilty about it. Like it's good for us in some way. He said, is, hmm. is it part hmm. of the human psyche? So. So we've got him, got Wilco Johnson, used to be with Dr. Feelgood, talking about mortality because he was told he was going to die, had six months, right. to six months to live. And uh, he nearly did die, but not of for the reasons they told him. And uh, so we've got him uh, chatting about mortality. And, and it, it goes on and on. We've got some boxers coming up, uh, sports people. We need a few more women on here, I, sh I should, should say. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 we really, I mean, I'm not, I'm not yeah, saying yeah. that, you know. Um, at the moment, it's it, it's it's a lot of ac it's academics, sports people, few rock and roll people. But uh, no, we're definitely on the hunt for um, a lot more women. I mean, we've got a boxing promoter who uh, uh, Frank Warren, who um, is transgender. So you can imagine one of the biggest boxing promoters. Like imagine you in the USA, like or mm -hmm. imagine like you know WrestleMania. One of your biggest promoters suddenly yeah. turns up wearing a dress and goes, "My name is Dorothy." You yes. know, I mean, the interesting. Yeah, there, so the, the dynamic, you know, so and he's a funny guy, you know, so we're going to try and talk to talk to him about about uh, one thing about identity and what people, you know, people's reactions to other human beings, you know. But touch touch on briefly what you guys discussed about the meaning behind 666 and the devil's uh, involvement in heavy metal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's obviously a lot to it, but kind of explain a little bit because of some of the highlights of what you found out in, in kind of delving into this subject. Well, a lot of it has to do with the history of apocalypses because Revelations the book of revelations uh to saint john the divine is not the only apocalyptic story in the history of of religions or cults or whatever there's mm. there's loads of them they, they, they go back and back and back and interestingly also bound up in that is the identity of the devil because in early judaism for example there is no devil Hmm. The devils only really start to become prevalent after Christianity kind of invents them as the way to scare people. And then Judaism sort of goes, hey, a devil, yeah, yeah let's make, I think let's make this guy a little bit more bad, you know. <laughs> so so it, it's interesting the way different religions treat the idea of the concept of 
evil or not evil or on the, on the personality an actual embodiment of evil as opposed to the embodiment of a person who just likes playing tricks on you mm. literally a trickster which would be the closest approximation to the kind of early you know judaic version of what turned into a more devilish figure uh, but you know satan with you know the fires of hell and the big combat finally of armageddon and everything all coming together what St. John the Divine was doing, because it's like you've got to look at where, I'm paraphrasing um, Steve Friesen, mm -hmm, Professor Steve Friesen, right? You've got to look at where he was when he wrote what he wrote and what he, language he wrote it in. So he wrote it in very bad Greek because he, he, he was not Greek, but he wrote it in Greek. Why? Because all the places he was visiting locally all spoke Greek. So some of what he wrote could be is, is a bit weird in the translation because it wasn't strictly grammatically correct. Turns out that in Greek, numbers as we would associate them don't really exist in the same way. They're written down as a number. So 600 isn't 666. It's 666. Okay. Gotcha. Now, that number... It turns out also has some significance. If you look between the lines at what uh, Sir John is saying, he's sending basically coded messages through the equivalent of the internet back then. Mm -hmm. So these would have been understood by kind of like rebellious groups as going, what's he talking about with 666? Well, that means, uh, let me see. And, and kind of what is now in, called numerology, and I forget the name of it back then, I used to know it, uh, but I've forgotten it because my brain's gone, uh, turned into a, a wash basin. Um, but um, what is now called numerology, the idea that numbers have an actual significance and you can have a name and reduce it to a series of numbers by a form. It's gematria. That's right, gematria. Mm, so, so gematria. So, so by reducing your name in certain ways, so each letter in the alphabet would be given... A is one, B is two, C. And you write your name, you add up all the letters, and you add it until you get one number. Okay? Well, it turns out that 666 or 616, depending upon whether you write in Latin or Greek, right? Both correspond, both correspond to Nero Caesar. And what he's saying is, who is the Antichrist? Who is, you know, there's going to be the coming conflict and this will all be swept away by the forces and the archangels of good. Who is the Antichrist? It's the Roman Empire, dude. Who is that? Nero Caesar. Caesar was the local commander. Nero was actually dead for about 30 years, but a bit like Elvis, there was a cult of Nero, of people who believed that he didn't die hmm. and that he was going to come back and restore the glory of Rome. So this is him taking a pop at the Roman Empire. Unbelievable. And this is just a, a, a snippet of what you guys... That's episode one. You know? Episode one, right, right. <laughs> Last question for you, Bruce. Uh, very excited to come see the show in Tampa. It's at a beautiful theater where the, the stage actually opens up and this old lady comes up from the from the basement playing piano, a big right. pipe organ. She's she's Satan, right? That comes up. Yeah, <laughs> I 
I think so. That's right. And then Flames you come on stage and with everything halo. else. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. And we're gonna we're gonna have you drop down from the rafters, <laughs> and that's the start of the show. Uh, is is uh, you don't have to tell it in complete detail, but just to give people a taste, is there a, a favorite story of yours that you like to tell uh, at the show, or one of them uh, that you like to tell uh, that uh, kind of gives an idea of what you're going to be doing? Well, everybody thinks that I was the the first. Um, you know, obviously knew I was. You know, people probably by now figured out that I was a pilot and. Uh, I had a career as an airline pilot for 17 years and various other bits and bobs. But, oh, my goodness me. Look at that. Look at my telephone. Look at that. It's a real phone. That is an actual phone. Wow. Yeah. It's good, eh? Jeez, Louise. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. a home line? Who has a home line, Bruce? No, it's not a home line. That's a mobile phone. That's oh, my Nokia goodness. That's a Nokia mobile phone. Look at that. Jeez, did you buy that at Boots Drugstore? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, everybody thinks I'm a drug dealer because I carry one of those, you know. <laughs> I mean... I, I carry one of these, and I just tell them, no, it's actually, it's not a phone. It's from 2001, A Space Odyssey, you know. Um, anyway, well, sorry, what was the question? Oh, you were talking about what we were going to tell <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 uh, um, everybody thinks I was, uh, you know, knows about the pilot thing. Right, the pilot, and, yeah. And um, as I explained in the show, I was actually not the first pilot in Iron Maiden. Really? Nico McBrain. Uh, was responsible for initiating me into the joys of flight. And I'll tell that story. <laughs> oh, that, that's a cliffhanger. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bruce, you're one of my favorite guests to have. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing your show, like I said. And I'm, I'm glad to, to know an actual polymath. <laughs> well, yes, I know. I just stepped on one the other day. It's a, <laughs> I've got a little bit of a bump on my shoulder. Can yeah. you take care of that? Yeah, that's that, a polymath. Yeah, that's a new you. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so All much, right. man. Good luck on the tour, and we'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks. Cheers, man. See you, man. Bye. I guess we're trying to figure out how to turn this off. We're like two uh, two uh, kids in high school. Neither one. You hang up. No, you hang up. There you go. You hang up. Leave. <laughs> <sighs>